Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. And please welcome Heather Kamira as she wraps up our series. Yes. Well, good evening. It's good to see your faces. How are y'all doing? Yeah, I'm Heather. I'm one of the pastors here. It's always just such a pleasure to be with you. I want to just welcome you if you are new tonight. Uh, This is your first time visiting us. Uh, We would love to meet you after the service. If you have time, come stop by and we'll introduce ourselves. Um, And for those of you that are joining online, we're really glad that you're, you're with us as well. Tonight, we are actually concluding our series entitled, Who Do We Think We Are? (laughs) And we have been going through the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and he penned this letter while he was still in prison, and it was to multiple churches that he himself had planted in Ephesus. And as we have studied this letter, what seems like for a while now, right? (laughs) As we've studied this letter, we have seen and, and kind of what surfaces and what has come to the surface is this overarching theme of identity, of identity. And he is reminding them and also us who we are in Christ. And he's also reminding us of how that should impact the way that we live. It's been theological, it's been practical, and tonight Paul is leaving some of the best, what I think is some of the best for last, and he pulls back the curtain and reminds the churches and us tonight of the very real spiritual battle that we are all in. He is reminding them of the reality of this world and of the amazing resources that God has given us and equipped us with to stand firm. And I'm not sure about you, but I don't necessarily think all the time about the fact that I am in a spiritual battle, uh, that there really is another player on the field, which is the enemy and his dark forces, but it is not really something that's a topic of conversation in our culture today. <laughs> we don't really sit at you know backyard parties and start talking about the devil and you know what he's been doing lately. It's just not something that in our culture we're familiar or comfortable talking about. We tend to have a more materialistic, non-supernatural worldview, don't we? That's kind of where we're coming from, especially in this Western culture of ours. And I know that our culture loves to talk about the problems in this world. I mean, you turn on the news and all it is is all about the problems, but we don't ever really talk about evil, do we? Evil. So here we see that in Ephesus, their worldview is very unlike ours. They were a spiritual hub of sorts. They had all sorts of religions and gods and evil spirits were kind of common, just common part of their worldview back then. It colored the way that they saw and understood their world. Tonight, what we're going to see is that Paul is leaving them with a final reminder of how to prepare in this life for spiritual warfare. And this passage is all about giving us the proper equipment that we need so that we don't go into this battle unprepared 
and so we can stand. Let's go ahead and pray and just invite the Holy Spirit to be with us in our time tonight. Well, Holy Spirit, we do. We just ask for you to come. Holy Spirit, come. Would you open our eyes to the amazing resources that we do have in you? I pray that it would give us hope and confidence in the battles that we face. Would you just bring our, your truth and your comfort with your presence here tonight? And I pray that you would enable us to stand and not give up. Lord, I just pray that you would direct me tonight and we give you this time. Jesus, we pray that this would be for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we are looking at what I would say are four imperatives or four commands that Paul lays out in our passage. And they're simply this, to be strong to be aware, to be armed, and to be standing. So four kind of commands that we're going to touch on tonight. But let's go ahead and by start and, and reading our passage tonight in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up your shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. The first command that I want to look at tonight is that, is to be strong, and it's in the first passage in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I think it is absolutely essential that we start here, that we first identify where our strength comes from. We cannot stand against the enemy in our own strength. So the typical ways, think of all those typical ways that we try to protect ourselves, those aren't going to work in the spiritual realm, our default can be to what? To just rely on our own strength, right? I don't know about you, but that's what I do a lot of times, to depend on ourselves. But when things are going really well in life, and we're the ones that we depend on, right? What happens to us in our spiritual walks? We start to coast. We coast. If things are going okay and there's no great disappointments or failures in our life or, or there's no real persecution or attack, at least that we can see, uh, or no real battles going on, at least we think, we spiritually coast. And we get, over time, spiritually weak. And that's what happens. I don't know if you know this, but it is a lie from the enemy that you are coasting toward God. I used to think that. I used to think, well, I love Jesus. I love Jesus, you know, so okay, I haven't spent some time with him lately, you know, it's okay. I love Jesus. I would just say that to myself, as though it was somehow enabling me to just continue to coast toward God. But, but actually, what we are actively doing when we are not actively following Jesus, being filled and, and renewed and strengthened by him, 
We are coasting away from him. That's our natural bent, is to coast away from God, to coast away. You see, the enemy wants us to be weak. I mean, obviously, right? We're easier target when we're weak. So when we face those struggles and hardships, what happens is when we're weak, we do, we start to sink. We start being really affected by his strategies. And, and of course, we know this, but, but he wants to take us down, and he wants to take us under, and he wants to slowly make us drift from God. <laughs> and, and that's what happens. Uh, when our dependence, I don't know about you, but when, when things come up in your lives that are really hard and, and difficult and struggles in this Christian life, which, which many people just call spiritual warfare, when, you, when your life starts to take you under, your dependence on yourself starts to run out real quick, doesn't it? I don't realize I'm usually operating on my own strength until I hit my limit, and I am just done, and I'm done. But, but what we see here is that strengthening and, and the arming of your soul, it takes time. It takes time. You know, God's desire for us is that we would strengthen ourselves daily, that we would be aware of the devil's schemes and that he wants us to be weak and, and that we would be ready to stand when those hard days come because we have been strengthened continually by the Lord. The second thing that Paul commands us here is he, he kind of tells us, guys, you've got to be aware. You've got to be aware of the battle of the battle. In Ephesians 6:12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The word Paul uses here for struggle is not so much a word drawn from warfare in like a military context. It's actually more of from a sports context. It actually means wrestling. That's what it means here, wrestling. Who here was a wrestler? Huh? Okay, we got a few. We got a few wrestlers in the house. Well, this is this is the hand-to-hand, you know, in your face. I mean, Paul is showing you that the struggle with the enemy is not some far-off thing. It is right here. It's right here. It's a struggle, and there's a closeness in that struggle that we're engaged in. But the other real big point in this in this verse, especially, is that the struggle that we face is not against flesh and blood. And what does that mean? That means it's not against you, and it's not against me. It's not against that guy and that person and, and against my spouse or, or against my coworkers. The, the, the fight is not against humanity. It's not against other humans. And I know, I know that for most of us, it, it's really hard to think like that, isn't it? Because we think of our enemies as individuals or people groups that, that threaten us or even threaten the church. Uh, that they oppose Christian morals in society, and then they challenge uh, what we believe in in our faith. And, and what we see when Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels is that he does not oppose those non-religious people. He kind of expects it, and he, and he welcomes them into the kingdom of God. That's what he does. But his opposition was primarily against the really good religious people. That's who he was against. And he was constantly saying, stop shutting the door of the kingdom on them. They're the ones I'm here to welcome in. And, and Jesus was the one who fought these powers of darkness that held those people in bondage, and he then invited them to follow him. I know it's hard for us, and we don't like that our enemy isn't them, but that it is 
And we need to remember that it is the enemy, the true enemy, that's behind the scenes that is our real enemy. See, like it or not, we are involved in this war. And this battle, sadly, it's, it's not avoidable. We can't choose to just sit this one out on the sidelines or find some cushioned seat from the stands and just sit there and watch it all play. Uh, we actually, if we are followers of Jesus, we are the ones that are on the field. We're the ones on the field, arm in arm together, and there is a very real but unseen enemy that wants to take us down. And Paul has mentioned the devil a couple times in this letter to the Ephesians, and the Greek word that he uses is diablos, and it means to slander. That's what it means. He opposes, he accuses. The, the word in Hebrew for Satan is, it means adversary. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And that word schemes is methodia, and it means the cunning arts, deceit, craft, and trickery. That's what it means. Here he is, he's been perfecting his methods and strategies, very willing to work for years on a person's life and, and set up traps for their demise. And Paul here, he wants us to see that there is this real battle going on, but he doesn't want us to overestimate or underestimate our enemy. Those are two real errors that we can fall into. Either we attribute everything to him, ah, that Satan made me do it, you know, or, or is Satan under everything, right? Every little thing is, is Satan. Or we're completely skeptical. We're like, nah, there's not a personal devil out there. That's just not real. Or we're just completely unaware, right? But, but C.S. Lewis, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. I think for most of us, our problem is that we're not always aware of the enemy's influence in our lives, and, and that's the thing. When something has power over you, the largest part of that power is actually in your denial that it even exists in your denial that it even exists and that you're even under its power or that it has any influence in your life. And I think really the first step for us and what Paul is asking us to remember here is that the battle is real, guys. It's a real battle and there are real casualties at play. So thankfully, what we see is that Paul, he is not really worked up about this. He kind of casually talks about it. He, there's no attitude of fear here, no anxiety in what he's saying and when he's instructing the church right here about spiritual warfare. And I love that, that we can just casually talk about it without bringing too much focus to the enemy. We're doing that this next month, actually. We're gonna be offering a class, I think you saw it in the announcements, called Spiritual Warfare 101. And it's led by Joe and Patty Kowalczyk, which they are just amazing people if they're here tonight. I love you guys, <laughs> but uh, they are teaching that class, and it, it is going to better equip you in how to face the enemy, enemy's tactics, so I'd highly recommend that class. But Paul here is he's remaining confident that all of us, as Christians, we can stand firm against these schemes of the enemy, and that we do not have to live unaware. Then Paul commands us, the next thing he commands us in this passage is to do is, is what? Is to be armored, to be armored and equipped with the armor of God. 
to be equipped with the armor of God. And in Ephesians 6, 11, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then in verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you can stand your ground and after having done everything to stand. So here's Paul. And he's in jail. We need to remember he's probably chained to an actual Roman soldier guard. And he's saying, guys, I want you to put on the panoply of God, which is the armor of God. And when you think of this, I don't want you to think of a Roman soldier. I want you to actually think of putting on Jesus himself, because that's what it is. That's the armor of God. It's putting on Jesus himself. It means to be identified with him and to fight with his strength, and in displaying his character. The emphasis is not so much on memorizing every single piece of armor, and, and you get in a tizzy because you're like, oh yeah, what's that one with the thing, and the oh my gosh, and oh my gosh, I'm gonna be totally, like, the enemy's gonna get me. You know, like, we don't need to be in fear that we're gonna forget one of them, because what we're doing is we're simply putting on Christ. There are some beautiful just links to the Old Testament passages in Isaiah where it's prophesying about Jesus here, and so what it is, it's, it's not every single piece of armor and obsessing about what they are and, and how they, even though we're going to get into that because it's such, such good stuff. It's more about recognizing who we are in Christ, which is the whole theme of this series, to live consistently with that identity, with the spiritual resources that are already ours in Christ. In other words, we ought to seek safety not in the armor but in the provider of the armor, in the provider of the armor. Acts 17, 28 says, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. You know, he's, he's talking to Christians here and, and these are Christians that already have all of these things at their disposal. The armor is simply a metaphor of the benefits and the privileges that we have in the gospel because of Jesus. And yet, what he's commanding us to do here is he's commanding us to put them on. Put them on. Sometimes that means that means that we have to kind of take off something first, doesn't it? Which is that self-reliance, that, that, that righteousness of our own. To take off that armor, the ways that we've been protecting ourselves. To take that off first and put on this new way of protection, which is this reliance and dependence on Jesus. See, Paul is saying, it's not going to help you if you don't take it out and you actually put it on. Are we actively using these things? Are we actively living in them? Are they, we making them our reality? His hope is that we are not just ex what is externally true about Christians would become really just internally true about us. So all the things we know would really be, be driven into our, in our souls and into our hearts that He's saying, what, is, what he's saying is, I don't want you to just know about Christ's love. I want you to experience it and have real joy. I want you to instinctively think, feel, and act like an infinitely loved and treasured person. I love how Matthew 8, when Jesus is woken up by these really scared and terrified disciples who are in a storm and in a boat, and they're thinking, why is he sleeping right now? Really? Really? And, and they grab him and they say, do you even care? And what does he say in return? He says, he says oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And really, the, the translation is better put, where is your faith? 
Where is your family? I gave it to you. I know I gave it to you. Peter, is it in your backpack? What's going on here? Get it out, guys. Put it on. Put it on. Where is your faith? See, I think a lot of times we are just not, we are not living in that reality of the truth. And what Paul is saying here is, I want you, I want you to wear it. I want you to take it on. I want you to stand against the enemy's schemes by walking in Christ and in his armor. And he, he wants this because he wants us to end well, doesn't he? He wants us to discover our purposes and discover our callings and, and to be a witness of Christ and, and to be impactful in the kingdom of God. But those are all the things the enemy doesn't want us to do, right? He wants to take that away. He wants to discourage us. He wants to derail us, and he wants to distract us. So let's, uh, let's look at each piece of armor here and dive into a little bit more of what it looks like to live in Christ and in his armor and to defend against these attacks. So real quickly here, the first is the belt of truth, the belt of truth. I used to think that this was just that little tiny belt that held up your tiny little sword. Ah, but it's not. Okay, so when you actually look at what the belt of truth is, in the Greek, the word means leather sheath. And that sounds really cool. <laughs> but it really, it's just like, it's this outer belt to hold a soldier's sword, it, it, or it wasn't the, the outer belt. It was more of this protective gear that went under everything. It would have been like a leather apron worn underneath the rest of his armor, and it would have been tied around the waist. <laughs> this is why sometimes it's actually translated girdle, which, uh, you know, maybe the Roman soldiers like, yeah, let's not, you know, use that word. Uh, but um, it's worn to protect your lower abdomen. And I love that Paul starts here. He starts with the truth. And notice he's not going from head to toe first. There's a specific order here. He doesn't move from helmet to shoes. He says, if you want to be prepared for war every day, you have got to start with a foundation of truth. A foundation of truth. Truth plays such a critical foundation and function in spiritual warfare. It holds everything together. It is, dare I say, the undergarment or the underpinning of all the things, of all the things. And it's not just knowledge of the truth or even our truthful character that holds us together in a fight, but it is when truth is the lens by which we look at all of life. That's the lens by which we look at. Truth about who God is. Truth about who we are. Truth about the world, about sin, about salvation. We are not just relying on what we know in our minds about God's truth, but we are attempting to put his truthful words into practice in our daily, daily living and letting it transform the way that we see life and what we believe, what we believe. If we are not shaped by truth, then, then we're not, we're, we're unknowingly being, we're being shaped by lies. We are being shaped by lies. And, and, and lies distort reality, don't they? And I'll be honest, <laughs> our lives are distorted by a lot of lies, like a lot of lies. And a lot of our problems actually stem from those beliefs that we have. Maybe, maybe you, have a, uh, you, know, you have a lie that you live by that all men are lazy, or all men are workaholics, or all women are really emotional and fragile, or they're just wanting control. I mean, when you start to live by a lie, it affects every other part of your life, doesn't it? It starts to really affect everything. 
And until you replace that lie with truth, it continues to control you. It continues to warp what you believe. The enemy is actively trying to do this, guys. He is actively trying to insert distorted perceptions of the world, of yourself, and of God into your heart and into your life. And what Paul is saying here is, guys, before you walk out the door to work, before you head off to class, before you go to the grocery store, you got to put your underwear truth on, guys. And I'm just going to say it. Because we never leave the house without it, do we? <laughs> and we've got to remember that we need that undergarment of truth. We need to be spending time with Jesus. We need it. It is, it is so critically important. We need to be opening our Bibles, saturating our minds and hearts with the word of God. This is not just a fun little option for super Christians. This is out of necessity so that we make it, so that we make it in the end and we end well. He says, regird yourself with truth. Do it every day if you have to. And this is why we worship and we sing and we speak of these truths. This is why we're speaking them over one another all the time. It's so incredibly essential. The next thing is the breastplate of righteousness. This would have been made out of metal and leather, and it would have covered, obviously, your vital organs. And righteousness, it protects the heart. The, the Bible um, actually says that your heart is where you think. That's where you think. And, and your gut is actually, in biblical times, it was thought of your gut is actually where you feel. That's where you feel. So that your vital organs are this place where your thought life lives and your emotions. It's what you feel. It's what you think. Righteousness, all it really means is, is to pass inspection, to be approved of, to be up to standard, and to be right with someone. It's a very relational word. It means to be presentable or acceptable, to be found well-pleasing in the eyes of the one who we want to most please. So think of like a bride. Think of how she spends her time making sure that she looks just right for her guy. I just went to a wedding last week and it was just like, I didn't know who to look at, the guy or the girl, you know, when she's coming down the aisle, it's just like adorable. They're both crying and it's just beautiful. Or think of like a little girl with their daddy. I mean, they just want to look so pretty for their dad. I have two of these girls, and they love their daddy, and they're all about wearing the dress for daddy dates, you know, because they know that daddy's going to like it. I mean, this is, this is just innate in us, right? Or, or have you ever gone on a blind date, <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to do everything I can to cover up all my flaws. I'm going to try to act as normal as I can. I don't want to like this person to totally like, reject me, right? Because that's our deep fear, is that we do not want to be rejected. We want to be accepted. We want to be accepted and approved of. That's what we want. I think all of us are wearing different breastplates of self-made righteousness to make us acceptable to the people who matter the most to us. And we know, as Christians, that we can never become truly righteous and truly acceptable on our own. We know that. We know we need Jesus. In Romans 3, it says, the righteousness from God comes not through our great works, but through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there's no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, what Jesus does is he gives us this incredible gift of this foreign righteousness that's not our own, that we didn't deserve, that we didn't earn, and it's all through faith, and he gives us that right standing before God. He makes us approved of, and that is what protects us. 
Because I don't know about you, but have you ever felt condemned? <laughs> have you ever felt accused? Do you ever feel like your past is being thrown in your face? <laughs> yeah. Do you ever feel like it just cripples you from moving forward in life? That you've blown it just too many times? That you just, you haven't prayed enough this week. I mean, that's it. That's why you're not approved of by God. You just haven't prayed enough this week. Or that you're, you're just, you're not the right kind of person. That there's something just innately wrong with you and it'll never be fixed. When we just focus on our actions, it's easy to think that we are just, we're just worthless and we're not approved of. And that's how the enemy gets us, doesn't he? That's how he starts to lay on the accusations. And yet the Lord says, but that's not where your righteousness lies. It lies in me and what I have done for you. What's beautiful is that the right standing and the approval of God begins to slowly transform our hearts and minds where we actually want to please God through our right actions, which in itself begins to loosen the hold of the enemy in our lives. It is this beautiful place of acceptance, not based on our works, but by God's grace that we begin to be truly safe, truly safe. The next thing we see are the shoes of peace. And this is in verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. This is the Roman soldier's half boot. And it's this open-toed boot, and it has these nail-studded soles, providing traction just like cleats, just like cleats. And Roman soldiers use these in marching and in standing in battle. Much like, or much of the ancient battles in that day were hand-to-hand and foot-to-foot. And it was like a line of scrimmage, right? Their readiness came from being firmly planted in the ground and ready to move when the orders came. We cannot survive the storms of this life without God's peace. We need it. The peace that comes, that comes to us, um, the gospel to us, is what makes us immovable in battle. First, it's that peace with God, and then it's the peace of God, that shalom that he gives us, that, that completeness, that soundness, that welfare that gives us real stability. It allows us to keep our footing when everything around us is just swirling. And life feels like that a lot of times, doesn't it? In Philippians 4, in, in verse 7, it says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lastly, there's also this beautiful element of sharing this peace with other people. We put on shoes in order to what? To, to get out of the house, to go somewhere, right? Right? Paul is saying that we should get ready to bring to other people the good news of peace, to share our testimonies, to share the gospel to those who are caught in the storms of life. Sharing this message of Christ, what it actually does is it actually advances the kingdom of God against the enemy's position. And then next, what we see is the shield of faith. It says, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, this shield is a pretty cool shield. It was like the first line of defense for those Roman soldiers. And against, it was from any kind of direct attack, but also from arrows coming overhead. And the soldier would carry this large shield. It was about four feet tall, and it was about two and a half feet wide. And it was very much like a door, which is actually where the Greek words for this, for this shield is derived. 
It was made of two layers of wood and it was covered with leather and a man could put his whole entire body behind it and it would absorb javelins and arrows from the enemy. Sometimes they would even dip it in water so that when <laughs> it was completely soaked, so when those flaming arrows came, uh, they would just be completely extinguished when they hit. Kent Hughes actually says, faith is the key to our protection because faith binds us in a vital deep union with God, with God. Faith is not just belief, it's belief plus trust. It is resting in the person of God and his word to us. Faith reveals a reliance on God. Again, it's all about putting on Christ, being in relationship with him, living in that intimate communion with him. Faith is what you say you believe in action. It's what you say you believe in action. Faith says actually very less, a lot less about you than it does about what you really believe to be true about God, what you really believe to be true about God. Paul is saying that we are battling in this war and the enemy is launching repeated volleys of flaming arrows. What is that? Like temptations and lies and, and deceptions and discouragements and, and accusations. But up comes our shield of faith. And what we do is we lay hold to what is true about God. We, we lay hold of his promises and the arrows are put out. They are put out. Next is the, the helmet of salvation. Roman military helmets were really just two different types. One was made of leather and another one was made of metal. And it exposed very little besides the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. And, and the metal helmets, really due to their weight, because they were such a heavier gauge of metal, they would actually be lined with, with natural sponges to help the weight. And the only weapons that could penetrate a metal helmet were hammers and axes. And so for us, what is that? that that's the assurance of our salvation and the resulting confidence that it brings. I mean, think about it. Have you ever put a football helmet on a little eight-year-old? <laughs> what happens? It'll typically swell with overwhelming confidence, and then it'll go out on the field and turn into some kind of kazikaze, kamikaze warrior of some kind. And I mean, those, those are the cutest videos, you know, when they're in the really big pads and the cute helmet. And, and they're just running around like crazy because they feel like they can conquer the world, right? Well, that helmet, our helmet of salvation, instills this irrepressible hope of a future salvation and glory with Christ. We should have that same swell of confidence when we put that helmet on, right? Sometimes, for some of us, we have been, though, we've been under attack for so long that we, we do, we feel like giving in. We're like, this is just, this battle has been forever and what Paul says, and, and he says it again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he says this in this way, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. You know what I think is one of the necessary pieces of equipment in doing spiritual warfare is hope, amen? Hope. This thing that I'm going through is not going to last forever, not forever. And what it does is in the midst of our trials, it starts to give us this eternal perspective of what we truly have in Christ. And the next, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Up to this point, all the recommended equipment has been defensive, but now Paul pulls forth this weapon, which is primarily offensive. And this is a short double-edged sword that a Roman soldier used in close hand-to-hand -hand combat 
Again, Paul is emphasizing the closeness of the struggle. And in Hebrews 4.12, what do we read? We read that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Ouch. Yes, it does. <laughs> Here's the Bible. It is powerful. It really is. And we need scripture as a sword, not to cut other people up. Mm. Okay, because remember the fight is not against flesh and blood and other people, but it is for us to use on our own souls, our own souls to search our hearts and it's used in, in attacking the enemy and defending ourselves. Think about the temptations of Jesus that were recorded in Matthew when Satan tempted Jesus three times. He defended each of the temptations with quotes from scripture and if Christ is battling Satan, <laughs> with the sword of the word, then how much more do we need to be doing it on a daily basis even? First, we begin with the sword by just simply opening up, getting it out, and reading it, right? We read it, and then we meditate on it. And, and I love that because it's, it's not just glancing over the verse of the day and checking it off the list and going, there we go, I'm good for the day. It's more than that, isn't it? It's reading the word, letting it really strengthen our souls, so like in Psalm 1, it says that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Then lastly, what we see here is that it says pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And, and you might think that, well, Heather, but this is not a piece of armor right? This isn't armor. But what's interesting is there is actually no separation in the Greek text between this passage and the passage preceding it. And so many people think that prayer truly is that seventh piece of armor. John Bunyan, uh, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he calls this weapon all prayer. All prayer. Because <laughs> it's at all times, and it's all, all day and all night, and it's all kinds of prayers, and it's for all the saints. And and Edward Payson says this, he says, prayer is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing that is necessary to minister. Pray there, therefore, my dear brothers, pray, pray, pray. <laughs> I think he's trying to get at something there. I love how Paul ends this passage with even a prayer of plea for himself. He says, guys, I can't do this without your prayers. And he says it in verse 19 and 20, pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might declare as fiercely as I should. See, what he knows is that, it doesn't, that he doesn't have the sufficient resources to communicate the gospel effectively. So he asks for prayer. And prayer for one another is like a strategy Roman soldiers used to use uh, to pro provide protection for one another. See, alone, each Roman soldier would be very vulnerable to attack. However, when marching or standing in rows, the first row would actually hold up their shields straight ahead, and then the second row would hold them overhead, and the ones on the sides would pull them out to the sides. And therefore, it would cover them, and they were really hard to stop when they would make this formation. It was called the testudo formation which actually means tortoise in Latin, because it looked like they were pieces of tortoise shells. As Christians, this is a beautiful picture of what we need to be doing for one another, which is praying for one another. That is one of the best defenses we have against the enemy. And then lastly, 
I want to end with this, is that Paul gives us one last command in this passage. He says, be strong, be aware, be armed, so that you'll be able to stand, to stand. And he says this four times in verses 11 through 13. And he says, stand, 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 and then stand. I think he's trying to get at something here. And I think this is so important to end on because this is so incredibly significant that our goal in battle is not to win. Our goal in battle is to stand. Because we are not, not, we are not fighting for victory, but we're fighting from a place of victory. We must remember that the devil has already been defeated. He's already been defeated, and we can have confidence in Jesus that he's already won the victory for us. In Colossians 2.15, it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Paul urges us to stand. It means to refuse to change positions or change your, your course. And what we see is that the majority of our Christian walks is one of resistance. It's one of defensive battle. It's holding the ground in your family, in your faith, in your beliefs, in God. It's not giving in, it's not wavering, it's not compromising, and it's not retreating. See, one of the ways that we hold our ground is that we don't do it alone. And I know in America we love, we love those lone heroes who, you know, rush into the battlefield and take out an entire army all by themselves, but that is not how wars are won. They're never won by a single person, but vast armies, groups of people working in harmony against a common enemy. Where are you arm in arm with your fellow brothers and sisters who actually know what's going on in your life? And how are you shouldering the burden and praying for others? We cannot stand alone in this fight. I love this call to simply stand, and I love how it is captured in this line from Sam in Lord of the Rings. Uh, has anyone ever seen Lord of the Rings? Oh yeah, okay, well I'm gonna end with this because it is such a powerful line. It says this, it's, it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't wanna know the end because how could it end happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine all out all the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. See, folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, but they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. They were holding on to something that there was good in this world and that it was worth fighting for. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and stand. We're going to go back into a time of worship. And, and in this time, this is a time to just open your up, yourself up to the Lord and say, God, would you just help me? Would you identify ways that the enemy's been trying to tear me down? And, and then we'll take some time to pray for each other tonight. Let's worship together. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.